The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. Well, let me invite you to take your copy, God's Word, and open with me to the book of Exodus. Uh, Exodus chapter 15 this morning, Lord willing. Uh, we will be walking through the first 21 verses uh, of Exodus 15. And um, I, I want to couch this in the in the context or under the title of why do we sing? We just finished singing together and, and uh, I want to answer this question from the text today. Why do we sing? In 1876, Philip Bliss uh, penned one of the most famous hymns ever called My Redeemer. And uh, probably the last hymn he ever wrote. And uh, we know this because Philip Bliss died in a train accident. He initially survived that train accident, but he went back into the train to try unsuccessfully to rescue his wife. And both of them perished there in that train accident, but found on his person, in his belongings, were the words to this hymn, My Redeemer. And the, the verses go like this, I will sing of my Redeemer and his wondrous love to me. On the cruel cross, he suffered from the curse to set me free. I will tell the wondrous story how my lost estate to save. In his boundless love and mercy, he the ransom freely gave. I will praise my dear Redeemer. His triumphant power I'll tell. How the victory he giveth over sin and death and hell. I will sing of my Redeemer and his heavenly love to me. He from death to life hath brought me. Son of God with him to be. And then the refrain or the chorus says, Sing, O sing of my Redeemer. With his blood he purchased me. On the cross he sealed my pardon, paid the debt, and set me free. Now my question to you this morning is, what leads a man to sing like that? What leads a man to write and pen lyrics like that? To, to take a pen to paper and set out those words. I would venture to say that singing is probably one of the weirdest things we do together every week. Now, right now, you want to, as Eric said this morning, you want to stand up and say heresy or blasphemy. But if you think about it, singing is one of the weirdest things we do. Nobody goes to work and starts their day at work with, with a rousing chorus together. You know, like, like the seven dwarfs. Hi-ho, hi-ho. You know, nobody does that. Nobody breaks for lunch, like saying, let's, let's sing the Oscar Mayer theme song. And right now in your head, you're singing it. Nobody leaves that day, like, it's time to go home, you know, and, and breaks into Dolly Parton's nine to five, you know, or anything like that. Nobody goes to school and begins to, you know, starts the day singing the, the theme song to Saved by the Bell, right? And, and right now, a lot of you are, that, are, that are children of the 80s and 90s, you know the lyrics, right? And, and if I were to just give you the permission, you would launch into it. Nobody, nobody goes to school and actually finds themselves in a high school musical. So singing is one of the weirdest things that we do. Nowhere else really in life do you come together and sing unless your work is as an actor in a musical or in some musical field. So singing has to be one of the weirdest things we do. So my question to you this morning is, why do we sing? 
It's, is it just for transition between different elements of our service? Do we just stick a song in between the announcements and, and it, where the offering is and, and leading up to the sermon and then after the sermon for invitation? Is it just a matter of transition between elements? Is there, or is there something more? If we're honest, sometimes we don't even want to sing. How many of you have experienced that? And I'll raise my hand first. You come into church, and really the last thing you want to do is sing. Anybody? Like if the pastor's got his hand up, you can raise your hand, all right? Um, Sometimes it's the last thing we want to do because sometimes we're carrying such a heavy burden and life is falling apart all around us. The last thing we feel like is a character in a Disney movie. My mom's here today. Mom, I don't know if you remember this, but I think the very first movie I saw was at the theater in Gatlinburg, and it was, I think, Song of the South. It was that Disney movie. And so when I was working through this, I, I just, I, the, the song, Mr. Bluebird's on my shoulder, you know, was just running through my head, right? And the last thing sometimes we feel like when we come into church is to put on a smile and begin to sing as if they're a little, you know, Forest creatures all just running around us, right? Sometimes we, we, particularly in here, we, as men, we think that singing somehow makes us less manly. And so shame on us. As I look around the room, and, and I'm guilty with you, but shame on us if we hold on to the pride of our manhood and refuse to sing the praises of our God. Why do we sing? I want to answer that today from this text together. Exodus chapter 15, verses 1 through 21. I want us to see from this that singing for the Christian should be one of the most natural things we do. I want us also to see, as one commentator said, that a Christian who does not sing is a contradiction in terms. So let's look at our text together. Exodus chapter 15, and I want to just read through, and then we'll walk, we'll walk back through as we, as we go along. Exodus 15, verse 1. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The, the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation This is my God, and I will praise him, my Father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he has cast into the sea, and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down into the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the water piled up. The the floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My, My hand shall destroy them. You blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. 
You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in and plant them on your, on your own mountain. The place, O Lord, which you have made your abode. The sanctuary, O Lord, which your hands have established. The Lord will reign forever and ever. For when the horses of... Pharaoh, with his chariots and his horsemen, went into the sea. The Lord brought back the waters of the sea upon them. But the people of Israel walked on dry ground in the midst of the sea. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand. And all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed. The the horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea." As we walk through this song that they sang together and that, that Miriam and the women repeated back, either in this antiphonal form where the, the men would sing and they would then sing back in the way we've done probably before in church services. As we walk through this, I want us to answer this question, why do we sing? And the first reason is this, because God's salvation demands it. God's salvation demands it. This song at the sea is a bridge connecting two halves of a book. Up to this point, we've spent just, just barely over a year walking through the first 14 chapters of Exodus. We've, we've been in this book uh, faithfully, just taking a break here or there for a mini-series or a standalone sermon. But for a year, we've walked and we've seen them as slaves in Egypt. And we've... we've done all of it under the the title of faithful to rescue, that God was faithful to rescue his people. But now the layout of the book is designed so that we would see that the rescue that God was faithful to bring is not the end. He rescued them so that they would worship. We're going to carry this out through the rest of Exodus uh, over the next probably year and a half or, or a couple of years maybe. And we're going to see how we are saved, we are, we are rescued to worship. But up till this point, they've been slaves. And now, and when they sang this song, they are standing on the shores of the Red Sea. And if you remember, the way we ended it last week was they were standing there and they saw the, the bodies of the Egyptians floating dead in the water. They've been slaves forever. And look at how the song describes this event. They're standing there on the other side of the Red Sea, having, verse 1, watched God throw the horse and his rider into the sea. Verse 4, Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts were cast into the sea. Verse 4 says, his his chosen officers sunk in the Red Sea. Verse 5, the floods covered them. Verse 5, they went down like a stone. Verse 10, the sea covered them and they sank like lead. Verse 12, they were swallowed by the earth. Do you think this had an impact on the Israelites as they watched this unfold? As they watched their God destroy their enemy that they must have thought after 400 plus years, no one will ever set us free from the Egyptians. 
There is no hope. There is no hope whatsoever. And God delivers them. And now they stand in the silence having no more master except the one who has set them free. And what have they left to do except sing? They sing to him. Salvation demands that we sing. They they erupt with praise in verse 1. And I would, again, just ask the question, why do we sing? Because salvation demands it. As one commentator put it, salvation from God is the spark that ignites joy and fuels praise. Salvation, when we come through and we have been saved, when we have been dead in our sins and trespasses, but God, as Ephesians 2 says, we have nothing left but to sing the joy that we now have and to sing the praise fueled by his rescue. I want to show you sort of the history of singing throughout the Bible. The Bible tells us that there was singing at creation. In Job chapter 38, verse 7, the morning stars or the angels sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy at creation. There was also singing all the way through the Old Testament. When Israel defeated Jabin and Sisera and Deborah and Barak sang for joy in Judges 5. David, how many times was David in fear for his life, but how many times did he see God faithful to rescue him? And how many songs do we have in the book of Psalms of David praising God out of salvation? Psalm 40 is one. Psalm 41 through 3 says, I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He drew me up from the pit of destruction, out of the miry bog, and he set my feet upon a rock, making my steps secure. And then his next words are, he put a new song in my mouth, a song of praise to our God. All the way through the Old Testament, Isaiah 51, when the the Israelites come home from exile, the ransom of the Lord return with singing. Isaiah chapter 44, when the exiles come, when they come home from exile, even creation itself sings. It's commanded to sing. Isaiah 44, 23 says, sing, O heavens. For the Lord has done it. Shout, O depths of the earth. Break forth into singing, O mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob and will, glor- and will be glorified in Israel. They're singing all through the Old Testament, at creation and all through the Old Testament. And then when God sends his own son into the world. We'll be celebrating Christmas together in just a few weeks. And between now and then, I'm sure you'll hear passages from Luke 1 and 2 multiple times, but look what happens when Jesus is about to come on the scene. First off, Mary magnifies the Lord there in Luke 1, 46 through 55. Zechariah, the father of John the Baptist, blesses the Lord in 67 through 79. In Luke chapter 2, verse 14, the angels praise God by singing, glory to God in the highest. And on earth, peace to those with whom he's pleased. In Luke chapter 2, 28 through 32, the old man who's waited, who had been promised to see the Lord's deliverer, finally sees him in the temple and he praises God singing to him and saying, now I have finally seen your salvation. All of this, all the way through, all the way through the, the, the Old Testament and all the way through the, the, the coming on the scene of the Messiah, 
And even in the church today, Colossians chapter 3 says, Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Singing is commanded for us today. And we will sing all the way to Revelation chapter 4 and 5, and then we will sing a song that never ends. In Revelation 4 and 5, the lyrics are, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Revelation chapter 4, the the lyric is, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. And Revelation 5 goes on with more lyrics, but there will be a song in the presence of God in the new heaven and new earth that will go on forever because it will be rooted in the salvation that God has been faithful to give in Christ. Philip Graham Ryken in his commentary said, the history of salvation is sometimes described as a drama, the drama of redemption. However, he says, this drama is actually a musical. It is impossible, Ryken said, even to conceive of biblical Christianity without songs of praise. Isn't that true? Aren't there times when you come up against the, the sheer depravity of your soul and your hopelessness under the wrath of God for your sin, but then him coming and sending his own son to save you from your sin. When you hated him, he loved you by sending Christ. Aren't there times when nothing else allows you to express that than song? Why do we sing? How could we not sing? A Christian who does not sing is a contradiction in terms. David Strain, who is a pastor in Mississippi, said this. If salvation were merely a reward for services rendered on our part due to to God, if he were simply giving us our due, our quid pro quo, we've earned it, so salvation is ours by right. If that were true, well, then we might strut and preen in self-congratulatory pride, but we would never sing praises. Salvation would be ours by right. We've no one to thank but but ourselves for it. But if God has broken in when we could not save ourselves, if Jesus Christ has obeyed the law of God that we could never hope to keep and paid our penalty at the cross, if there at Calvary it really is finished and there's nothing for us to do, well, then what is left for us as we receive the mercy and grace of God as sheer gift, but to sing praise with gratitude and joy and hearts melting in wonder that we should be so beloved. Why do we sing? Because our salvation demands that we sing. The secondly is this. We sing because God's character deserves it. God's character deserves our praise, deserves our singing. Even though Moses was instrumental in delivering the Israelites, notice this song is not about Moses. There is not one mention of Moses in this entire song. No one on the shores there, no one on the banks is singing how great a job Moses did in the holding out of his hand and holding that staff out. Man, Moses, you did such an amazing job. It's subtle, but notice the song is not about 
the deliverer in human form. The song is about the deliverer who is God. And this may seem elementary or simple or uh, no need to be said, but worship is about God. It sounds so simple, and we should all know this. Worship is about God, but we cannot assume that everyone knows that worship is about God. There's an entire church culture that is focused on not worship of God, but about worshiptainment, as it's been coined. This, I want to sing songs that edify me, but that also entertain me. I want to be pleased. I want to, I want to have my ears warmed with what I hear. I want the notes to be on pitch. I want the, the volume level to be where I want it. And what we often forget and what a, what a church culture needs to hear is that worship was never about the worshiper. Worship is always about the one who we are worshiping. I want you to see how Moses here in this song sings this praise to God's character. In verses 3 through 5, he sings praise because God is a warrior who fights for his people. Verse 3, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. In verses 4 and 5, Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts, he cast into the sea his chosen officers were sunk. The reason here he says the chosen officers is because he wants you to see that Pharaoh didn't send out his slackers. Pharaoh doesn't send out the the bottom of the barrel in his army. Pharaoh sends out the cream of the crop, his chosen soldiers. And God destroys them. God casts them into the sea. God sinks them there in the sea. And Moses here praises God for being a warrior who fights for his people. God is mighty in power. We see this there in verse 6 when he says, Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. Now, it's not as if God really has hands. God is spirit, and he doesn't have flesh and bone like you and I. But here he gives us this visual image as if God had this right hand that he just shatters the enemy with. And he doesn't say right hand because God's left hand is weaker. I mean, any of you work out and you go to the gym and you're trying to lift weights and you got one side that's stronger than the other. It's not the picture here that he's giving of God. Like, like he needs to like really just kind of isolate and focus on that left side a little bit more. No, he's, he's pointing here. Look, look, here's what I want you to see. Verse 9. Verse 9, the enemy said, I will pursue, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. So the enemy says, my hand is strong. My hand is filled with mighty power. And Moses said, they thought their hand was strong, but yours is stronger still. He praises God for being mighty in power. In verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You you send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. That word stubble ought to cause us to think back. You remember around Exodus 5 and, and in that area where Moses first begins to confront Pharaoh and Pharaoh gets angry and makes the Israelites go out and he doesn't provide straw for them anymore. He says, you will go out and you will find your own stubble to make bricks. 
And God here, even in the praise of Moses, is reminding that he's exercising judgment through his power on Egypt for their evil. These Israelites that had gone out and collected this stubble and knew just how fragile it was and how easily it would be consumed, they had just stood on the banks of the Red Sea and watched the Egyptian army be consumed like this stuff they used to go out in the field and gather. Verses 8 and 10, At the blast of your nostrils... The waters piled up, the floods stood up in a heap, its deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. You blew with your wind, the sea covered them, they sank like lead in mighty waters. There's a few little phrases here I want you to just take note of. This blast of your nostrils. Again, God literally doesn't have nostrils. But it's this picture of just the normal breathing of God. Without any exertion whatsoever, he parts the sea. There's an image here that came to my mind just because this is how my mind works. But remember the, remember the first Jurassic Park? You remember that scene where the, the dinosaur comes up to the vehicle where they are and he breathes on the glass and it fogs the, the glass there? It's the image I get here. That God just, in the exhale of God, breathes and just parts the water. There's a great Thanksgiving word in this, this, these couple of verses here. The word congealed. How many of you will have some congealed salad? What a great word. This is the picture here of, of the water standing up and becoming like a jello mold. How's that for spiritual? But you won't think of that dish at Thanksgiving table any, the same way anymore. And walk through this, and, and it's just, this thing's not coming down. I don't know how this thing's standing up. It just, it, I don't know, it's defying gravity. How does this thing work? God's power makes it work. He says they sank like lead. The army that was like iron became like lead when the water came over them. He praises God because God is unique. In verse 11, he said, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? It's interesting, this phrase here, who is like you among the gods? What did we say over and over again that God was doing through the plagues? Was he not destroying their gods? This plethora of gods of their imagination and their crafting. God was tearing them down one by one, raw and all these gods. And here Moses looks back at this and said, who's like you among the gods? Verse 13, he praises God for his love. Verse 13, he says, you've led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You've guided them by your strength to your holy abode. God loves with a covenant-keeping love. Moses here acknowledges that and, and realizes that this is not a new thing for God, but God has been doing this from the beginning. He comes to Abram when Abram was no one, and he was, not, he was certainly not a nation. He had no children of his own, but he makes a covenant with Abram, and it follows Abram's line. Abram becomes Abraham, and Isaac comes along, and Jacob, and here we are. And Moses acknowledges God's faithfulness. This, this covenant-keeping love is this absolute loyalty to his people. And get this. 
regardless of their infidelity to him. Regardless of how many times they will grumble and complain, he will be faithful to preserve his people and to carry out his promise to them. This is our God. Moses praises him for this. So why do we sing? Well, the text tells us why we sing, but Here's what I would say to you, because we can sing as much as we want to sing. We can do nothing but sing the praises of our God from now until Christ comes again, and we would not exhaust the character of God. One of my favorite lyrics of any of the hymns, could we with, the ocean, could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above, would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. We sing because God's character is infinitely worthy. And then third is this. We sing because God's faithfulness drives it. At this point, Moses and the Israelites are still standing on the banks. They've not taken one step toward the promised land. They're standing, and they're just overcome with the awesomeness of God at this point. And particularly for his destruction of their enemy. Yet look at how Moses begins to talk. They've not taken one step toward conquest, but Moses speaks as if they had. Verses 14 through 18, the peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. He begins to talk about all these people that they will encounter. Philistia and Edom and Canaan. He talks about how they are trembling, that they are like, they're still like a stone, that that they just stand and, and, and just wait as they pass by. Terror and dread has fallen upon them, Moses says. How can Moses say this? How can he talk about how these inhabitants of the land will act before they've ever encountered these inhabitants of the land? Moses can say these things about what the future will hold because he first looks back at the faithfulness of God to deliver. He can speak with bold confidence because he looks back and sees, my God's faithful. My God has always been faithful, and I have no reason to think that he will ever stop being faithful. We must do the same thing. How do we know that God will really save us in the end? Many of you will wrestle with this. You wrestle with with doubt and insecurity and am I really a Christian? How do I know that God will really save me in the end? How do do we know that he will finish what he began in us? And I know what Philippians tells me, but how how do I know this? How do we know that we will not somehow disqualify ourselves with our shortcomings and our falling short along the way? And how do we know when we're among coworkers and friends who are skeptics, they're not believers, how do we know that they're not right, that we're not wasting our time? We know this because we can look back. 
And we can see the great measures God has gone to to save us to this point. We can look back to his faithfulness in the past and then count on his promises for the future. Let me, I couldn't do it any better, so I just want to quote again from David Strain. He says it like this. You must look back and see what your God has done for your soul. How shall he who gave his own son not also along with him graciously give us all things? If God is for us, who can be against us? You see what God has done for your soul, believer in Jesus? He has given his son to Calvary's horror to make you his. There's no sin that festers in your heart that is a match for the love of God that gives Christ to the cross. Nor are there any trials that you may face today or in all the tomorrows ahead of you that are greater than the faithfulness of God, who having begun with the cross will surely finish the work he has started and bring you to glory before the throne. He who promised is faithful, and he will do it. What is the proof? It's that the cross of of Jesus Christ was planted in the soil of this world to save sinners like you and like me. It is that the tomb is empty today for you, and that the throne is occupied today for you, and that the one who presides there and reigns there is even now interceding for you and me. See what God has done. Fight fear about tomorrow with faith in what God has done in history and know that he who has gone to such great lengths to make you his child will never leave you. He will never forsake you. Nothing can break the grip of grace that holds you fast in the palm of his hand forever. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. Fight fear with faith in God's past salvation. And when you do, you will begin to find that instead of words of anxiety and doubt, unbelief and fear, your mouth will be opened with new songs of praise. Church, we sing because our salvation demands that we sing. How could we not sing? We sing because God's character is worthy of our praise. And we sing Because his faithfulness drives our praise. When you come in here and you don't feel like singing, if you're one of his children, you will encounter that from time to time. But do you know what God will never do? He will never leave you in that place where you don't feel like singing. His faithfulness to you again and again, if you're really his, will bring you in spite of yourself to the place of praise. Church, we need to sing. The Bible tells us in in Revelation chapter 15, I won't go there and read it, but Revelation 15, 3, this song of Moses is mentioned again. And there in heaven, this song will be sung again, the song of Moses, and with it will be added the song of the Lamb. And we will sing those songs throughout all of eternity, forever. They will never end. But church... Let's not wait till then. Let's sing to our God. Pray with me. God, I'm so thankful that you've given us a new song in our hearts. That you've put a new song in our mouth. That when we were dead in our sin and trespasses, you have made us who are believers today, who are Christians today, you have made us alive. God, 
We don't stand on the banks of the Red Sea, but Lord, we do stand on the banks of your salvation. God, I pray that we would take note of your worth. God, I pray that as we walk forward in this life, that we would see over and over again your faithfulness, that we would look backwards to how you have been faithful, and God, that it would spur us on to trust you in the future. God, make us, as a faith family, one that sings together. That we would sing together and that we would sing privately. That we would catch ourselves in moments of the day, coming out of time alone with you or just time riding in our car, thinking about the things of, that, that proclaim that you are worthy. And God, that we would find ourselves bursting into song. Even those of us who are not musical, God, put this song in our heart that we might sing to you, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to give you a moment to reflect and respond, and we're also in this moment going to, in these last few minutes of our service, going to take the Lord's Supper together. Um, The Lord's Supper may also seem like one of the weirdest things we do together. You say, well, I can take singing, but why do we come up around that table and we eat little pieces of bread and we drink little cups of juice together? Well, let me just explain to you why we do this. This is not something for every person in this room to do. If, if you're here today and you've never trusted the Lord as your personal Savior, you're not, you're not saved counting on His righteousness alone, then this would be an empty act for you. This would be just tradition and ritualism and religion. And religion will do nothing to save your soul. But those of us who are here today who have truly been saved by the grace of God, what we do when we do this is we come to this table and we take a piece of bread and we remind ourselves that Christ's body, and we take that cup and his blood, was broken and poured out for us. And that we eat and we drink in remembrance of his sacrifice for us. And we also then look forward Just as I've talked about today, looking backwards to his faithfulness and forward that we might trust him going forward, that we're looking forward to one day, just as he came the first time, that he will also come again. And we long for that day. But until that day, we will gather together and we will remember and we will look forward. And we will remember and we will look forward. And we will remember and we will look forward, counting on his promise. So if you're here today and you are a Christian trusting in Christ alone to be your only hope of salvation, whether you're a member of this church or whether you're a member of another church and you're in good standing there and you're visiting with us today, we invite you to come and take the elements of the Lord's Supper. Not in a manner that says, this earns me favor with God, but to do so in such a way that says, God has been so faithful. How could I not trust him for the days ahead? We celebrate that today. If you're here and you're a believer, in just a minute, come celebrate. And just remind you as you come to the table, it's not a, not a time to chit-chat in the, in the aisles. It's not a time to catch up on the football games yesterday or talk about the weather or, or any of those things. This is a moment where we together celebrate this And we do so with reverence to our God. And so think about what you're doing. 
If you're here today and you've never trusted the Lord as your Savior and you hear us talk about why we sing and that our salvation demands that we sing and you sit here today and you know, I don't have a song in my heart. I don't have a joy that just needs to get out. I want to have a joy that just has to get out. Then today, Jesus says to you, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. God says to you that if you will come to him, casting your sin on him and trusting in his righteousness for you, that he has paid your penalty for your sin, that today you will be saved and that you will cross over, as John 5 says, from death to life, and you will find the greatest joy you would ever know in anything you could ever experience. Nothing in this world can ever give what the peace of God's grace can give. If, you, if that's you today, I'll be seated down here on the front. love for you to come speak with me. If I can help you to know what the next steps are, come see me. I want to pray. I, I, I've already prayed. I just want to just open this time for you to respond either to the tables, to me, but ultimately to God. You respond as God leads. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.